2019 has been an incredible year for early childhood in Oregon. We've recorded 13 episodes of the Early Link podcast this year, and for this, our 14th show, we're going to review some of the common themes shared by our many esteemed guests and share what's on our minds as we move into 2020. I'm your host, Rafael Otto, and this is our final Early Link podcast of the year, a 2019 year in review and look ahead to 2020. We start with the struggle that families of young children face and are still facing in Oregon. In our April podcast on Head Start, we talked with Bob Harding, a former Head Start student, now a bank executive and children's advocate, about what it was like growing up in a low-income family in Orchards, Washington. When you're a poor family, you go through challenges that you don't you don't know till you go through them. And finding even finding a place to rent a house is a challenge. So my mom not knowing the area, being from out of the country, chose a place that would rent to her. And, you know, what this orchards was at the time, um, it, was a, it was a dangerous place. So it was a challenge. Every day was a challenge. It, it was rough to be a single uh, mother with four kids and no support, mm-hmm. uh, no extended family. And so having the connection to the school and Head Start, I say, and I'm proud to say it changed my life and it changed my mother's life. And it allowed my mom to get on her feet um, and allowed her to pursue her career. In Yonkala, Oregon, Sarah Ruiz Waite talked about the barriers that families in rural Oregon face in accessing health care. A lot of our families that live here in the Drain, Elkton, and Yonkala areas We have a lot of poverty within our community and our families, and most of us live paycheck to paycheck, and we don't have the ability to even simply save to go to the doctor. And being that, especially for myself that have multiple children, that's multiple appointments driving to and from the doctor, which is anywhere for some people 10 to $30. And that makes a big impact, especially if you're having to do it for multiple people. We also had the honor of talking with a number of luminaries in the fields of early education, child health, and public policy this year. Among them was A.J. Chaudhry, former Deputy Assistant Secretary in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He's a co-author of the book Cradle to Kindergarten, A New Plan to Combat Inequality. Here he is on what he describes as a crisis, the growing opportunity gap in the U.S., which starts at the very beginning of a child's life. So the basis of the crisis is that we don't have any infrastructure or supports that supports the development of young children. And we know from the science and we know from the research that it is the period in which the greatest growth in human development and brain development occurs. Um, And what we do have is really mostly what families are able to do on their own. And so what that means is that families who have the resources have been pouring more and more into their kids um, in the earliest years to get them ready for school, to get them to feel confident, to have all of the sort of skill levels. And what that's meant is there's been a, a pulling apart. A very small fraction, probably a quarter to a third, get really enriched developmental services, birth to five, and show up in kindergarten as further ahead than any generation of Americans before them. They have greater capacity than their parents or their grandparents, in part because of these investments. So that's a proof of concept that that's something that could really just raise everyone's capacities, except 
rights. Um, what we have in terms of public provision or supports for families who don't have those resources, because these are really expensive services, things like high quality childcare or preschool education, you know, costs upwards of about ten to fifteen thousand a year across the country and higher in expensive places like Portland. Per child. Per child. Yeah, per right. child. Mm -hmm. And so if you're to think about that, if you would need to be making at least six figures to be able to do that for your child. Mm -hmm. And most families aren't earning that. So this is, and we really try to make the case that the crisis isn't just about low-income families or families who are struggling at the very bottom or at the margins. This is really a crisis that affects the middle class maybe as much or more so than low-income families because the greatest growth in inequality has been among the most affluent families and the middle class. That's where the test score gains have been stretching out. That's where um, kindergarten readiness has been shown to be diverging. So I really think that, you know, we are in a crisis because we have never come to grips as a society with a few things. We haven't come to grips that where children are during the day in their first five years has changed dramatically across the United States. We also heard from several early education experts who are doing important work to help bridge the gap that A.J. Chaudhry is talking about. In 2019, we shared the work and research of many educators who are working to deliver high-quality education with a focus on equity and inclusion. Anya Hurwitz is the executive director of SEAL, a California-based dual-language inclusion model for early learners. We know what's happening developmentally for children during these years is profound. These years are so critical in the development of their language and their learning um, and their overall cognitive and emotional development. So if we're trying to reimagine schools and reimagine what schools should be, then ensuring children's first experiences are as powerful as possible is just key. And for English learners, that means having an asset-based approach to language development. That has not been, and in many places is still not the approach being enacted, this asset-based approach, um, but rather systems are designed as if children and communities have a deficit because they speak another language. Here's one example of what high-quality classroom interaction for young learners looks like, courtesy of Deborah Leong, who is the co-founder and executive director of Tools of the Mind, a curriculum and professional development program. These are her thoughts on the power of play. So in preschool, our children plan their play, and in kindergarten, our children play also, and they, they plan what they're going to, we call it dramatization, because they actually play a story instead of just uh, playing the community around them. And eventually, by the end of kindergarten, those plans, play plans, turn into learning plans where children really think intentionally about learning. And because of this belief in play and uh, the importance of executive function, it's very important that the classroom have children who have positive interactions with each other and that you create a, a sense of intellectual equity among children so that they value each other's ideas and they value their own ideas and they actually learn how to learn. Right. That's the foundation for everything. And once you have that in place, you can transform what happens as that child moves into kindergarten and beyond. Right. It's helping teachers find other ways of managing the classroom so that children help manage each other. So our kids work in pairs. They have a study buddy in kindergarten who helps them learn. And it's really a wonderful thing when you create this cooperative learning environment 
both in kindergarten and preschool. And then that means that the teacher doesn't have to be the policeman of the classroom, so to speak. It's interesting. So these play plans I was talking about in preschool, our children plan the role they're going to be and what they're going to do, and they plan it with other children, and they do it actually on paper. And then when they go to the center, they have this piece of paper that says what they've decided to do. And if they change their mind, they can do that. But we really ask them to follow through for at least a minute. And what you find is that over time, children actually use that plan to solve social problems in the classroom. So another child takes their toy and instead of getting upset, they'll say, you know, was that your plan? And the other child will say, oops, no, that's not my plan. So it's really interesting because children don't really go to play to get into a fight. They actually go to play and they have the best intentions And so what the play plan allows them to do is to write those best intentions down so that when they do get into an argument, they have a place to start to solve it rather than, you know, I'm stronger than you and I get it or I grabbed it first. But it's actually this intentional thing and it allows them then to learn to take turns. So this play plan is actually an exercise in self-regulation and executive function development. Christina Weiland, an assistant professor at the School of Education at the University of Michigan, makes the connection between great learning environments for kids and the needs of the workforce to make those high-quality learning environments happen. From a child level, it looks like having a place that you can go to regularly where it's clean, you're happy, it's safe, you're able to be pushed for whatever your level is, right, to where you're, you're headed next. So it looks like being able to access play-based fun experiences in the different domains of early learning that are really important in preschool, like math, literacy, language, socio-emotional skills, in a way that draws on the science. Because we actually have at this point, particularly in the U.S. context, a number of really rigorous studies that point the way around what are more versus less effective ways to deliver high-quality preschool instruction. And so it's having teachers who are able to deliver that, right, in in ways that are fun and play-based and the kid isn't stressed out or feeling overloaded. They're actually just very engaged. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some examples of that um, do are around the country in places like Boston, but not just Boston. Other places like Seattle have really um, tried to deliver on high-quality preschool and, and, and Tulsa, Oklahoma as well in which they have thought about what do you need for the teacher then? And so what do you need? You need a teacher who is treated in a professional manner. So they have the same qualifications as the K-12 teacher, and they're not paying a huge penalty to teach preschool. Sure. So in a lot of places, a kindergarten teacher may be making $60,000, but the preschool teacher is only making Mm $35,000 or so. And so what's going to happen is you're going to have a leaky bucket problem where – your most qualified teachers um, that you've invested in, that you've trained in how to work with young kids, as soon as they can, they're going to leave for the K-12 system. Terry Seaton, a Head Start preschool teacher, talks about pay equity and the demands placed on the early learning workforce. There's lots of people who come to Head Start and start at Head Start, but because the discrepancy in compensation is so great that we end up in many times becoming sort of a training ground. Sure. For other social service agencies, people come oftentimes out of college or out of another um, profession and work in Head Start for a year or two and get really good 
experience and training and then go on to the school districts or to so other social service agencies for higher compensation, more benefits. So I think it's unfortunate that we don't have more pay, e yeah. pay equity with, with other professionals in early, in early learning. People in early learning are asked to do more and more things. I mean, we're asked to, you know, have understanding about brain development and ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences. We're asked to work with children in variety of who need accommodations and disabilities. So I think in many ways, we're asked to help this sort of complex period in children's lives. And yet we are not often seen as parallel professionals. You know, I think people too often associate early learning with babysitting. And it's so much more than that. It's something that, you know, takes professional development. It takes education. It takes good training. It takes intention and planning to, to do well. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely you know and support much of the work and perspectives that Leong, Hurwitz, and Chaudhry are sharing here. You might also share the frustration of Dr. Pedro Noguera, a sociologist whose research focuses on how schools are influenced by social and economic conditions and demographic trends. We talked in January. Well, that's the problem. And that's the reason why so many of the so-called solutions we pursue have done very little. You know, as a country, we, and, and you see this happen in states all across the country, we fixate on um, what we think is a several bullet solution. In L.A. right now, it's been choice, expanding charter schools. Mm -hmm. A few years back, it was phonics. We were going to promote phonics in schools. Some districts are putting their emphasis on technology and getting computers and laptops into classrooms. There is no silver bullet. And this way of thinking about education is based on a kind of fiction and a fantasy that if you just do one thing, everything will, you know, be transformed. Anybody who has spent any time really thinking about it, working with schools, knows there are several critical ingredients that have to come together. Uh, you need to get parents involved. Parents have to be involved, which means that, that the staff needs to work with parents to build trust that's rooted in respect and empathy, and so that there's reinforcement at home for the learning that happens in schools. Noguera offered what he called a rule of thumb when it came to making strategic, comprehensive improvements to early childhood. So here's a rule of thumb. All you have to do is look at what affluent kids are getting and say that's what poor kids need too. So affluent kids are getting good preschool, okay? Right. I know very few parents who just keep their kids at home, mm -hmm. especially when they have working parents. Mm -hmm. They've got to have preschool and they make sure they're good, high quality. But that's not all they get. They get rich summer experiences, summer camp. They get after-school support, violin lessons. You know, they get the, the works. Well, that's what all kids need. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge is, especially in a state like Oregon, which has large rural areas, how do you do that in rural communities? And, you know, how do you make that available? And, and you know, so I'm not going to suggest that it's easy or um, because it is, it's costly and it's tricky to figure out how you plan for it, but it, it can be done. Here in Oregon, early childhood supporters and advocates spent much of the early part of the year working to pass House Bill 3427, now more commonly known as the Student Success Act. The act passed in May with the promise of billions of new dollars for education and a historic new level of investment in early childhood care and education. Figuring how much early learning programs and supports cost in Oregon was one of the jobs that John Taponia, president of Echo Northwest, was tasked with. And as he described in our podcast in March, it wasn't easy, given the many overlaps and funding streams that contribute to what has historically been a patchwork array of services. 
When we added it up, and it was harder than it should have been, uh, because there isn't really a what you would call a formal coordinated system of uh, early childhood program in the state. You've got, uh, like I said, sort of the federal government is sending money directly to providers to provide the federal Head Start program. Oregon, as a state, is funding the Oregon pre-kindergarten program. The federal government helps the state in funding the employment-related daycare sure, program, et cetera. Sure. In some cases, the early the home visiting program is being delivered by uh, local governments uh, with state money, but at their direction and their sort of governance and decision around how much of what and where, et cetera. Speaking of numbers, you might be interested to know that references to system-level improvements and system change occurred more than 100 times in our 13 Early Link podcasts this year. It is, by our count, the most frequently mentioned overarching theme of 2019. Most of our guests from the health, advocacy, policy, and education worlds referenced or spoke to the need to improve the lives of children in a coordinated and aligned fashion. Here's our own Dana Hepper, Director of Policy and Advocacy at Children's Institute, explaining how that was reflected in the Early Childhood Coalition, a group of more than 30 organizations that successfully joined forces to help ensure that support for young children was more than just funding an individual program here or there. One of the things that has been really exciting about the Early Childhood Coalition is that it is a consensus approach. And so each organization may be playing a leading role on one specific component of a package of early childhood investments, but every organization understands and recognizes the ways that the investments work together and the importance of moving forward on them all at the same time. One example we think about a lot is the Early Childhood Coalition has been supporting investment in early intervention, early childhood special ed, which is Oregon's birth to five program that provides services to families that have children with disabilities and delays. And here we've been advocating for increasing access to preschool. And what we've been saying is you can't increase one without increasing the other. That in fact, if you want to expand preschool and you want children with delays and disabilities to have access to inclusive preschools with typically developing peers, you need to invest in both early intervention, early childhood special ed and preschool. Just an example of how the pieces of the system really work together to serve children and families. If all goes well, we'll look back on 2019 as a milestone year, with passage of the Student Success Act and other early childhood legislation comes the promise of more robust funding for a range of child and family supports. These include universal home visits, early intervention and early childhood special education, and the expansion of public preschool opportunities for children. There are also several early childhood issues that were not fully addressed in Oregon this year and that will be on our minds as we move into 2020. We hope you'll stay tuned for future conversations on the state's childcare crisis and the complexities of growing an early childhood care and education workforce. Those are just two items on our to-do list. We'd like to end our year with these thoughts from former Governor John Kitzhaber when we spoke to him earlier this month. I think the greatest threat to this nation is not terrorism. It's not the trade deficit with China. It's the fact that probably 60% of our children are exposed at a very early age or even during pregnancy to a set of risk factors that will dramatically compromise their ability to succeed. And you cannot solve that and protect them from that by building a wall, but only by building strong families. And so those investments need to become the highest priority, I think, of our society if we want to uh, really build a future of hope and optimism and opportunity. 
This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. I'm Rafael Lotto. I and our entire staff at the Early Link Podcast and Children's Institute wish you a very happy holiday season and new year. Join us on the second and fourth Sunday of each month on 99.1 FM at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm.